Okay, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 to 25. Apparently, from what I've seen, if we were reading in the original Greek, we'd be reading one sentence today. It's split into a few in English, so I can pause for breath. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. come to this point in the letter to the Hebrews. In effect, this passage follows, obviously, straight on from the one we looked at two weeks ago, if you were here. He's opened up, or he's, indeed, it follows on the whole argument that the writer has been building. But particularly these last uh, verses we saw in chapter 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And he goes on to lay out how that bears out, how it was that the law foreshadowed what was coming, how the law was not the full reality revealed. It was, it was something it pointed towards, something. And that something being the coming of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' victory at the cross. So that as he says, the, the law was not the realities themselves, but the realities themselves have now come. Jesus has come. And so, as we see a passage starting, therefore, obviously we need to ask what it is there for, but very conveniently, the writer then says, therefore, since. Now, therefore, since is always a good phrase, because he then goes on to give us a bit of a summary, effectively, of what he's been arguing. He gives us a summary of what he's been arguing. This is the point. This is what I've been saying. This is what it is. In light of this, he's then going to give us some actions to put in, some things to put into action. So we're going to look. He gives, he gives two reasons that we're then going to move into action. And the first thing is, we see here, therefore, in verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that, it is, that is his body. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter. It's a strong statement. Confidence to enter the most holy place. Confidence to come in to the very presence of God. This place, he's alluding to the place that was formerly the, the very innermost place of the temple. The place where the high priest could go once a year. Having followed all the right uh, rituals and the right 
getting dressed up in the right way, doing all the right washings and everything, on the, that one day, the high priest could come. We see here, since we have confidence to enter, it's such a contrast with the old way that has gone. That trepidation, that sense of once a year, one person, if they do it exactly right, they can come that one day. Now, we have confidence to enter. Why? Well, because of his blood. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, because of his blood, we can come with confidence. By his blood, we are granted access to the Father. Access to this most holy place. And if you were here at prayer meeting on Friday, you'd have heard I kind of alluded to this as I was reading this, just reading the starkness of it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, wow, do I have confidence? Do I have confidence to come before God? You see, we can get hung up and think, well, it just sounds so arrogant, so wrong. I have confidence to come before the Father until we think about it rightly. This is what's been provided. This is what he has brought us into. It's not, it would be arrogant if we thought, by my works, by my actions, I have confidence to come before God. But no, by his blood, now I have confidence to come. Wow. On that basis, we can come with confidence into the presence of God. As he's been looking at in the previous verses, the old has gone and the new has come. Those Old Testament sacrifices, everything that went with it, they couldn't fully deal with sin. And yet now, all the reasons for doubt, all the reasons that we might lack confidence, any sense of how could I be considered worthy to come, they're all dealt with by his blood. So we can come with confidence. Because God has accepted the blood of Jesus. He goes on to develop this sense. We have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. A wonderful and indeed quite complicated phrase. Again, he's just filling out this picture and talking about this wonderful access that we have into God's presence through Jesus. We see this wonderful picture by his blood, by a new and living way. We can come through the curtain into the presence of God. He invokes this image again of the curtain in the temple, as he's already done back in chapter 6 and verse 19 and 20 where he invokes that sense that Jesus has gone through the curtain. Verse 19, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's looked at, he said, look, Jesus has gone beyond. Jesus has gone in. That's where our hope is. It's in the very presence of God. And yet here, he brings that picture in a slightly different way. With the focus, we can come in. We can come into that holy place. Let's look at this phrase. By a new and living way, opened up through the curtain, that is his body. 
It's an interesting phrase. The curtain, that is his body. And some have argued that, well, actually, no, they're talking about his body being the new and living way. And we can see the argument of that, and we can see there is truth in that. As we look back to the wonder of the cross, and we see Jesus hanging on the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out, as he hangs and breathes his last. As we look in Matthew 27 and verse 50. We see that as Jesus was hanging there, as Jesus breathed his last, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And what happens right then? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Here we see Jesus is the new and living way. But actually, this this phrase doesn't really allow us to say that that's all what he's saying. He appears to allude to the fact, he's, he's saying, well, the curtain, you know, remember the curtain. When I'm kind of describing Jesus, his body as the curtain. And that can seem a bit wrong, it doesn't make sense. The curtain was what blocked the way. But actually, let's think about it. The curtain was what they came through into the presence of God. And now the writer's saying, no longer is that curtain there. No longer is the curtain there. Now, what you see is Jesus. Jesus, his body... Broken for you. His blood poured out. Now through him, you come in. Through him, you come in. And so we can see this wonderful picture. Yes, by his blood. By a new and living way. By his body. We come through him. Through his sacrifice. Through what he has done. Through his finished work, we can come in. No longer do we see a dead, lifeless curtain hanging there, blocking the way, saying, you can't come in. Maybe the high priest once a year. Now we see Jesus. Now we see Jesus who says, come in. Come in, in me, through me, come into the very presence of God. Wonderful truth. So now, since we have confidence, by his blood, yes, by this new and living way, through his body, broken for us at the cross, by that, in that truth, we can come. But secondly, he says, and in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, a great priest over the house of God. And the writer of the Hebrews has been so keen to emphasize this, to emphasize the fact, look, Jesus, he was the sacrifice. He was the one who went to the cross, but Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our priest. The priesthood would have been such a familiar concept to the Hebrews he was writing to. So familiar. And he's, used, he's spoken of Jesus as priest in so many different ways through this letter so far. So familiar to them and yet so wonderful for us too. We have a great high priest forever interceding for us. A great high priest forever before the Father. Not like the old. He's made this point before. Not like the old priests who come and go and there'll be one after another after another. And they'll always be offering sacrifices. Always, always, always. No, we have this great priest who once for all offered his body and now is interceding forever. Because he's the son of God. Because he's the king who reigns. Because he's the one who will live forever. He's always there for us. He's always interceding for us. As we see, he's already wonderfully said at the end of chapter 4. Making a a very similar point. 
In Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the writer, he's effectively summarized a lot of what he's already just said all the way through the book. Look, because since Jesus has done it, since his work is finished at the cross, since we can have confidence by his blood and since he is our great high priest interceding for us, then let's do some different things. He points out three. Because of all this, therefore, three things. The first one, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Firstly, very simply, draw near to God. Press in. Come to him. Understand that the access that we have to the Father. Understand that he has provided the way that we can come with confidence and so let us draw near. Let us draw near. That comparison with the old, again, it must have sounded so wonderful. Where before, we can't come near. We can't come in to the very place. Now, with confidence, you can. So, let's draw near. And he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and in full and the full assurance that faith brings. He says, since you have confidence, let's draw near Honestly, just as we are, sincere hearts. We're not trying to make out that we're better than we are to somehow be able to come. We're not trying to make out that everything's all right so that therefore then maybe we can come. No, it's because we have confidence in the blood of Jesus. We come with sincere hearts. We come just as we are. We come in the moment, whatever's going on. Not putting something on, not putting on a mask and saying, well, God would accept this one. No, he accepts us as we are because of Jesus. Not pretending in any way, but coming reliant on him. Because as he goes on to say, wonderfully, he has made us clean. having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You can see there, it probably have drummed up images in their mind of, of Ezekiel 36, verse 25, which talks of how God was going to come and I'll have to read it. <laughs> I had it in my head. 36 and verse 25. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 
I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's Look, this is what God was going to do. And this is what God has now done. Heart sprinkled to make us clean. And again, you can see as well, he's, he's bringing that contrast. He's just said in chapter 9 and verse 13, alluding to some of the Old Testament sacrifices and rituals, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Saying, look, you can see sprinkling the blood of, of, of different animals could, could do something. It can make something of a difference. But now look, I've done so much more. He's done so much more. Your hearts have been sprinkled to make them clean. Your hearts have been dealt with. Now we can come, draw near, draw near, reliant on that wonderful work of Christ that has made us clean. So we come with sincere hearts, just as we are, but in the full assurance that faith brings. Because we can know we're accepted because of what he's done. We can know that as chapter 4 verse 16 said, knowing we'll find mercy. You see, the tendency can be for us to say, I'm really not in a good place. Therefore, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to sort myself out a bit and then maybe I'll be able to come back and come in. To say, everything that's going on at the moment, I can't press in. I'll just, let me get myself right. No. The writer's so keen to us. no, let us draw near to God. Not because of anything that's going on with you, but because of what he has done. Come with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith. Because there we find mercy. There we find the grace that we need. There we find healing and freedom as we draw near to God with sincere hearts. Secondly, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Again, as he said back in chapter 4, verse 14, let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. He reiterates it here. Hold unswervingly. What a wonderful word, unswervingly. Let's keep hold of this hope, this wonderful hope, this truth that we know, the hope of salvation. The writer's been so keen to stress all the way through the letter. Persevere, keep going, hold on to this hope. To press on with rock-solid, unswerving faith. Why? Because he was aware of the risk of them drifting away. Aware of the risk of them turning to anything else. But more simply and more definitely here. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Hold on to it because it's true. Hold on to it because the promiser, the one who made the promise, is faithful. As he's, as he's drawn us all the way back in chapter 6, uh, verse 17 to 20, God made a promise to Abraham. Right back with Abraham, God made a promise. And when he made it, he said this, 
In verse 17, because God, chapter 6, verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, which it's impossible for God to lie, he, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. God promised. And not only did he promise, the one who cannot lie, whose promise is enough, that it cannot be broken, nevertheless, he also made an oath. It's secure. It's solid. There is nothing changeable. And God, he said it. He's done it in bringing Jesus and bringing and in Jesus' perfect sacrifice that meant it is finished and he is working it out and he will continue to work it out to the end of history when Jesus again will come. He's faithful. He is completely faithful. So let us hold on swervingly to this hope. We can trust him. We can trust him in everything. This hope is secure, completely. We're not holding on to anything wobbly or flaky. Circumstances and events can always spring up to tell us otherwise and say, is it really true? Is, it, is your hope really as secure as you think? Even this morning, waking up to the news of further terrorist attacks in London... Waking up on any morning, you could look at news from different corners of the globe that would say, wow, what, this, look at this darkness. Look at what's going on here. Whatever might be going on in your life right now, be it illness or bereavement or uncertainty in the workplace, un- even being caught up in the election that's coming up this week and being uncertain, thinking, look at the uncertainty as we go forward can all come in and just say, is it really so secure? Is your hope really so secure? A writer says, look, hold unswervingly to the hope because he is faithful. Anything can come up and suggest otherwise. But in him, our hope is rock solid. We sang uh, at the, the earlier meeting this morning, the old hymn, It is well with my soul. I was reminded as we sang it of the circumstances of Charles Horatio Spafford writing that hymn. Circumstances can rock us. As he, his wife and daughters were heading to England from America on a ship when the ship was, was wrecked. And Charles Spafford gets the news as his wife, who survived, sends a simple telegram, two words, saved alone. As the news breaks that his daughters are dead. And as he travels across the ocean, thinking of these circumstances, he looks to his guards. It is well with my soul. When everything's buffeting in, when everything is is turning to an I know I have a hope that is secure and it is well with my soul. This is the truth that the writer of the Hebrews is pointing towards. Look, 
Hold unswervingly to the, faith, the hope that we profess because it is secure and it is wonderful. Whatever else is going on, let us trust him. And thirdly, in verse 24 and 25, we see these words, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, he's, he's urged us, draw near to God, hold firmly to the faith that you profess, hold unswervingly to this hope. But also there's a kind of shift of focus. Draw near to God. Focus on him. Fix your eyes on him. And yet at the same time, consider how we can spur one another on. You see, he's keen to stress this isn't just about me and my relationship with God. My my eternal hope. My faith. My trust in God. But it's about us. It's about the people of God. It's about us together, a community. We're not in isolation relating with God. Yes, we want to hold firm in our personal devotion, in our times alone. We want to focus our eyes on God, our personal salvation. But yet, God has brought us into something bigger. He's keen to encourage the Hebrew hearers of this letter to be the people of God together. Not just as individual believers who are kind of somehow muddling through on their own. See, he says it very practically. Don't give up meeting together. And we can see this seems to have been a possible issue for them. We've seen throughout the, the letter this theme of the, the potential for slipping back, of drifting away, of of perhaps slipping back to the synagogue, going back to their old friends who would... Perhaps say, oh, well, you had your time away, but actually you've come back to what's really true. Perhaps fear of persecution, of meeting together as a group of believers in Jesus, this kind of unrecognized new thing. Well, perhaps we'll just drift back. We can still meet at the synagogue. We can still believe in Jesus, but we'll, we'll, we'll meet in safety. He's so keen to stress. Guys, meeting together is so key. Being the body of Christ together is is what it's all about. Because we're not alone. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. That's how the church is described throughout the New Testament in different ways. We're the body of Christ. We're the family of God. We're his people. We see this right as the church came into being in Acts chapter 2. You see that wonderful description of how they were devoted to different things. We see in Acts 2 and verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, 
praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And we see a picture of a people who were together and they were meeting together. They were in and out of each other's homes. They were, yes, devoted to teaching and to prayer and to all these things, but also to fellowship and to being together, meeting together and encouraging one another. We see the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging them to do the same. Go on meeting together. Because what, what does he see as one of the big functions of meeting together? Spur one another on to love and good deeds. And this sense of mutually encouraging one another. We see his understanding that as you meet together, it's where we get encouraged. As we meet Yes, on a Sunday, yes, perhaps at prayer meeting on a Friday in a call group or a connect group, but as we meet one another in our daily lives, we're encouraged. And we are to encourage one another. But we see, consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. This is an incredibly strong word. Spur on, to provoke, to incite a response. In fact, as Phil Moore points out in his Straight to the Heart book on Hebrews, the only other time this Greek word that's translated spur on is used in the New Testament is in that occasion in Acts 15, in verse 39, where Paul and Barnabas fall out, effectively. It's used to describe their sharp disagreement. It's that kind of strong, powerful words. Now, obviously, in this context, the writer isn't talking about falling out with one another, or disagreeing. But he's talking about provoking and challenging. It's strong. It's not a kind of weak word. And you can, see, you can sense from that, that how important he sees this to be. Actually, as we meet together, let's not let things drift. Let's not let things slide. But in that sense, let's care for one another. Let's love one another by actually... Challenging one another. Challenging one another. You see, we can so easily think, well, that just seems, actually any kind of sense of challenge or provocation just sounds a bit unkind or unloving. Actually, the writer's saying, no, no, it's the opposite. Actually, in grace, in love, we want to challenge one another, to spur one another on, so that actually we can live even more in the presence of God, in, in, in his plans and purposes, so that we can live out this wonderful life that he's given us. You see, this was key for them, it's key for us also. Don't give up meeting together. You see, the danger for us in our Western individualistic society is to get drawn into this idea that actually, oh, we don't need to meet together, we don't need anyone else. We don't need anyone else. I can, I can relate to God. Just me. I don't, I don't need to meet with my brothers and sisters. There's that danger, a bit like they, they've had. Don't give up meeting together. But actually, there's an, another more subtle danger. That actually will come. I'll be there. I'm supposed to be there. Perhaps following the, the letter of the law. I'm going to come and I'll meet. And there's encouragement from just meeting together. But actually, 
The danger is for us to be there, but actually we're not involved in one another's lives. We're here together, but actually we're still on our own. So many of us can find it so hard to open up to one another or to to ask ourselves anything beyond the quick conversation, oh, how are you? Oh, fine. And leave it there. It can feel so hard. But actually, the writer's expectation here, actually, let's encourage one another. Let's spur one another on. Let's not let things drift. Let's not let, oh, fine, be the only answer we receive. But lovingly, let's encourage each other. And for us also, it's easy, perhaps, to drift into a sense of complacency, to get sleepy, as it were, as Terry, if you were here at the All Together last week, was talking, from, uh, talking about Jonah. Jonah, asleep in the storm. It's not, not really hearing God anymore. It's kind of drifted into this sense of everything's raging around him and yet he's just asleep. We don't want to be those who drift or indeed allow others to drift. And we see actually, come on guys, let's go together. Let's encourage one another to press on, to draw near to God and to hold on to this hope. Because that's what we want to be. We want to be those who press in. want to be those who, in the light of this wonderful truth, this wonderful truth, he has done it. And he is interceding for us. We want to be those who press in, who hold unswervingly to the hope encouraging one another as we go and as he finishes this particular few verses all the more as you see the day approaching knowing that we're heading towards that final day that wonderful final day when Jesus is coming back that's where our hope is leading that wonderful truth Jesus will come again Let's live for his return. Amen. Let's pray.